take your Bibles, open up. We're in uh, Mark chapter 1, and uh, we're starting with verse 21, and it reads like this. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So we're talking about the beginning now of Jesus' ministry. Here's where it actually kicks off. Here's where it, it starts. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Jesus leaves Nazareth and that he moves to Capernaum. This would become the base of his operations for the next three years uh, where most of the stories in the New Testament or in the Gospels take place. And Jesus was of the rabbinical age of 30. And so he was able to begin ministry as such. He used what was known, there's a phrase back there called the freedom of the synagogue. And the idea was that uh, guest speakers could come in, they were invited or welcomed by the different leaders of the synagogue and and their their goal or their uh, purpose was to bring good news to their countrymen. Through So through the Torah, through the scrolls, that kind of stuff, they were to bring a good word. Uh, Jesus was bringing the ultimate good news that he, the Messiah, had arrived. Right? And you can imagine how shocking that is. Let's take a look at this again, just so we have the geography down. This is northern Israel. And if you look, uh, Israel's down below the bottom of the screen there. You can see Nazareth there. You can see Cana. You can see Magdala. You can see Gesenaret. You can see Capernaum. So it's right there on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. You can see Chorazin and Bethsaida and many, many of the stories that we know of that we've uh, grown up with uh, through Sunday school and that kind of stuff all takes place in that area right there. So have that map in your mind as, as we keep talking. And it says this, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now Mark doesn't detail for us what Jesus taught, but sufficient to say that when he was done, they were astounded. Luke tells us that the passage he uh, spoke from and rolled out for them was from Isaiah 61. And the historical summation of the teaching of Jesus is simply this. No man ever spoke the way he did. There was just something absolutely significant about the way Jesus spoke. And people recognized it from the very beginning. Um, this is coming, why this is startling is they were stunned. Right? The word for astonished there is that they were like slapped or struck like by a blow. So, I mean, they were just rocked, is how we would say it. And uh, this is coming from the people who are known as God's people, God's chosen. Right? They were familiar with the word. Not even Moses spoke with this kind of authority. And that's what shook them. Uh, this was Mount Sinai all over again. Not man speaking to God, but God speaking to man. And it, and it rocked them. And they recognized it instantly. It says they were astounded. Uh, another word you could use is thunderstruck. Another word you could use is awed. And one of the problems, I think, for our country right now is that we're not awed anymore. There's very few things that awe us. There's very few things that we catch us by surprise. We're, you know, we're worldly. We've been there. Oh, yeah, whatever. And, and we've lost our awe of God. And that, I think, is a, is a critical mistake. These people face to face with Jesus did not have that reaction. In my heart, I wrestled and prayed for this all week, um, that this message wouldn't just be words. You know how you come to church, ah, oh, yeah, ho-hum, okay. Oh, good, keep going, Pastor Steve. 
Now I'll make you all yawn, right? Um, just, you know, heard all this before, so what kind of deal. This was not their reaction. And if you think about it, when we run into Jesus through the Holy Spirit, that's not our reaction either. I, I've said the Christian life is many things, but one of the things it's not is it's not boring. Okay? Terrifying, uh, unnerving, unnerving. Uh, discombobulating, uh, all kinds of things. It, it, it's all those things. But the only time it's boring is when you aren't face-to-face with Jesus or aren't doing what he's asked you to do. Otherwise, it's more than a thrill ride at Disneyland. right? You have no idea which direction this thing is going to go. And that's part of why we kind of brace up half the time. The, the tables had been flipped. In just that moment, it had just been turned upside down. They suddenly realized instead of being the ones who asked the questions and held the place of control, and they liked that, right? And we can find fault with them, but we like that too, right? We like to be in the place of control. They were suddenly in the place of the ones being asked the questions, and Jesus held the control. They didn't even, couldn't even figure out how that happened. It happened so fast, it hit them so suddenly they, they were like, totally off balance. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this is the authority of Jesus. Right? We're talking about knowledgeable, competent. He was talking to the priests and the scribes. We're talking about people who knew their stuff. Okay? And Jesus' authority rocked them. They were not sitting there arrogant. They're going, what in the world is this? This is the authority of Jesus. And Jesus has great authority. And that's something that we often uh, wrestle with. There's a desperation in my heart that we get this. I I don't know I can find the right words for it. Jesus' authority was recognized as a God-given, God-sanctioned authority. They knew it wasn't just another person talking. It said he didn't teach them like their scribes who talked about things. He, he, he owned it. He didn't speak about, he spoke of. Of what? What he knew about the kingdom of God. And what he knew about, and what he knew was true about himself. And it came across as a thunderclap. His opening statement was this, repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. He was coming to rescue people. He was coming to turn the course of their life away from an eternity in hell towards heaven. We don't talk much about hell these days because we want to believe it doesn't exist. The Bible tells us it does. And we are to repent and turn. If the Christian life is not working for you, one of the questions I had as I went through this is, is it possible that this is the piece that's missing? This authority piece. You know all the right words. You know the right actions. Uh, you, you know the church lingo. You've been around a long time. But it's not working. You, you're not engaged. You're bored. You're uh, disconnected. It's nah kind of thing. Is it possible that the piece that's missing is you fail to acknowledge the authority of Jesus? You want him to bless you. You just don't want him to be an authority. I know before I knew the Lord, I loved the idea that God loved me. I didn't like the idea He had the right to tell me what to do. Anybody else have that problem? 
Okay? How do you respond to authority? Authority. What a loaded word. Right? Especially in our culture. That's just a dynamic, dynamite-type packed word. We love it. We hate it. Are you able to operate under authority? Have you ever placed yourself under Jesus' authority? Have you ever seen that as necessary? You know, the difference between acceptance and surrender is followership. Acceptance is I follow Jesus on my terms. I accept Him, but I'm still in control. Surrender is I follow Jesus on His terms. That's a little different, right? Can involve all the same words, all the same thoughts, and even some of the same actions, but it's radically different in the end result. In one, I'm still in control, and I want Jesus to operate on the terms that I dictate to him. On the other, I let Jesus dictate the terms, and I operate under surrender. You know, if you think about it, Jesus said to them what? Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. We just saw that uh, last week, right? Come follow me. Follow me is an act of surrender which is followed by a lifetime of surrender. Not only do you start... By the way, the best picture of that that God ever gave us is marriage. Right? One-time act of surrender. We call that the wedding, followed by a lifetime process of surrender. Most of us get the act down really well. We dress up beautifully. We look really pretty. We look really handsome. And we look really loving. It's the process that wipes us out. And likewise, the same is true in the Christian life. We get the initial surrender. God, forgive me of my sins. Wash me, cleanse me, save me. We get that part right. It's the following for the rest of the lifetime that trips us up. Not only do you start following, but in surrender you continue to follow. Come, follow me. To follow, I must acknowledge who's the leader. Who leads the journey of your life? You or Jesus? If the answer is you, you'd better check which trail you're on. For some of us this morning, this is, a, this is the whole message. We really don't even have to go any farther. Who's on the throne of your life? We need to surrender, but we don't. We won't. And it all boils down to the authority issue. It's really hard to follow someone who I'm resisting. You ever been there? I can intellectually acknowledge the whole thing. I've just never engaged my will to act in surrender towards him. Uh, let's, let's stop and pray for a second for this, right? Lord, we've come to a, a critical place in the message where literally only your Holy Spirit can unlock the key and give us eyes to see. My words or my efforts can't. Um, as we stop and we pause, your authority. Authority, Lord, is such a messed up concept in our world right now that it's hard to get a handle on. And yet you are not only the ultimate authority, you are God Almighty, but you are also the great authority. Balanced, whole, not an egoist, and yet firmly in control. And we stop and we pause this morning recognizing that 
Some of what might need to take place cannot happen by human instruments or human persuasion. It has to come solely from your spirit. So we release you in this service this morning to be at work among us, to speak a good word uh, of this issue of authority. And if there's someone who knows that's their battle, may they just acknowledge that to you right now. May we all acknowledge that to you right now. We're all at different stages of that. Help us as we go through the rest of the message, Lord, because everything hinges off of this. And we ask for your help and favor in your name. Amen. All right, let's move on. And it says, Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Probably said it louder and crankier than that, right? Um, If we don't see the issue clearly, there's somebody who certainly does. Mark uses the word again immediately here, and I think it's really with good purpose. As Jesus spoke with authority, there was someone who instantly recognized that the battle over authority had been engaged. He, the unclean or evil spirit, instantly recognized Jesus' authority and instantly began rearguarding action. This is not, oh, I've come to faith, I'm a demon, I believe in you, I know who you are. This is, I know who you are, you're the enemy. What have you come, the words literally mean, have you come here to destroy us? The actual intent is you have come to destroy us. And we don't like it. And they're reacting. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The implication is clear. What are you doing on our turf? This isn't your turf. This is our turf. Why are you on our turf? Have you come to destroy us? This clearly shows that they knew who held the power in this exchange. They, they got it right away. They knew instantly the, the jig was up. And they didn't like it. It also shows their knowledge and fear of what they knew their destiny to be. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? This is not, again, an acknowledgement of faith. It's an acknowledgement of fact. An attempt, it's actually an attempt on the demon's part to blow Jesus' cover, to beat him to the punch, so to speak. Uh, There's a little bit of gamemanship going on here, a little bit of poker playing, if you will, uh, at this moment. Uh, by using Jesus' name in, in occultic circles and magic circles, it's believed that if you know the name of the person, particularly their special name or their secret name, and you can speak that out, you hold control over that person. And so the demon's trying to flip out Jesus' name, hoping that they can gain control of the situation right here. Jesus wasn't phased in the least. And here's the key, key point. Even if the Jews didn't know who Jesus was, the demons certainly did. Right? This raises another interesting point. And I'm going to raise it this morning just to let you stew in it. I'm not going to answer it. Thank you. You're welcome. Can there be demons in the church? This episode takes place within the synagogue. That's church as they knew it. Right? Uh, But this morning here, Northview, huge issue that we can't cover this morning, was the guy a believer? Was the guy a plant? 
he, Satan had timed this guy and knew Jesus and, you know, was it a plant? Was he an observer? Who We don't know. Whatever the case, he was there. And although he may have not recognized who Jesus was, the demon within him certainly did. Bet you that guy was a little bit surprised. Right? And it says this. It says, Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. That would be a little disruptive for the morning service, wouldn't it? It says Jesus rebuked him. This should be understood, not the man himself. Jesus wasn't rebuking the man, but he was rebuking the spirit that spoke out of the man. Note also that this demon spoke for other demons, that there were more than one. Have you come to destroy us? Implicating there's more. And so we don't know the whole story, but this is what was going on. And I want to suggest to you, first we saw the authority of Jesus. This now demonstrates to us the power of Jesus. Right? This shows Jesus in his strength. First, the command, be silent and come out of him. It was a stern command. The language used here, he's not asking, he's telling. Okay? And he's not just telling kindly like, oh, could you please leave that poor man because this is really messing up my day and, and this is not how I wanted to go and could you go away and maybe come back another time. That's not the tone at all. Out, silent, now. Okay? Everybody, out of the pool. Right? That's the tone of it. He's not asking, he's telling. Stern command. And the unclean spirit, it says convulsing him. Uh, it means he literally turned white, started perspiring, shaking, convulsing, like we would call an epileptic seizure. Boom! We don't know if he fell on the ground or what. He probably did. And then it says crying out in a loud voice. So we don't usually do that in church, right? But... Something like that. Probably louder. It's right there in the text. I didn't make it up. Convulsing and crying out. Very simple to understand. And it says the demon came out of him. The demon claimed this man. The demon... uh, claimed this man and his body as his turf. It was his area of control and jurisdiction. The demon did not, under any circumstances, want to give up his leverage or his control in this situation. He had no interest or intent in cooperating with Jesus at all. But it also had no choice. He did not come out easily. He did not come out willingly. But he came out convulsing the man and screaming because a power greater than him had just confronted him and he had to concede and he had to obey. And he didn't like it one little bit. And so he went out on a rant in a terror. Scripture tells us a great deal about the power of Jesus. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus not only created the universe but that he also holds the universe together by the power of his word as we sit here this morning. The very atoms in this room and in these chairs and in your bodies are held together 
by the power of God Almighty, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that all the fullness of God, everything about God Almighty and the eternal God and the holy God and everything that is is Him is in this person here that we have just encountered, Jesus. Mark tells us that the spiritual world is under subjection to Him. We just saw the story. And this must be said. The book of Hebrews in chapter 7 tells us that Jesus is every bit as powerful today and more so because He is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. He is the resurrected Christ. So instantly here or immediately, as Mark would say, we are exposed both to the authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus. No one ever claimed the things he claimed and no one ever did the things he did. Not before, not after, not since, ever. It's an open window into something that was happening for the first time. They instantly recognized this was different from other pretenders or self-proclaimed messiahs that had come before. It says this, they were all amazed. I've used the different words, stunned, rocked, you can... Put words in there. So that that they question among themselves, themselves saying, what is this? I find that interesting. I find that interesting that they don't go, we recognize this is the actual voice of God speaking. They should have because they were God's people. They stood back and said, "What, what, what, what is this? Skeptical. That's sad. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. It didn't take long for the cork to come off the bottle. Right? This had an explosive effect in that town of Nazareth. Word spread like lightning. The grapevine was going crazy. Uh, Like we would say today, Twitter like Jesus. Right? Just blew up. Come on, that was pretty funny and pretty relevant and pretty hip for me, and you didn't even chuckle. Gosh. All right. Jesus literally burst upon the scene, and his fame spread throughout the region. Hey, guys, something new, something popped in Nazareth. He commands unclean spirits, and they obey him. We've never seen anything like this. Can you imagine how they talked? It says then, immediately, again, Mark loves this word, he says he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. At this time, now there are four disciples in tow, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. And uh, notice the flip has already taken place. Instead of it being Andrew and his brother Simon, you now have Simon and Andrew. Peter has already taken uh, Prominence and preeminence. I always wonder how Andrew felt about that. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be fun to go to heaven and ask him and just say, how would you feel about your brother usurping your role? That would be kind of cool to find out, knowing how brothers work, right? I'm sure that went over really well. But it says they entered Simon's house. And then there's this story that follows it. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. So we learn a couple things here about Simon really quickly, just in this little text. Number one, Simon owns a home. Apparently the fishing industry was uh, treating him well. 
We find out he was married. He had to be married. Why? Because he's got a mother-in-law. We find out that his mother-in-law lived with them and that she was ill with a fever. Uh, we don't think of fevers as a very big deal in, in our world because you know we have penicillin and all these antibiotics and, and we go in and they, they aren't life-threatening. But in that day and era, a fever was a deadly. And if you couldn't break the fever, the person would die from it. So we don't know the level or, you know, is it just a little fever or a, a big fever? It seems to indicate it had incapacitated her. And it says Jesus walks over to her, takes her by the hand, and lifts her up. So you could imagine he takes her in the bed, takes her hand, pulls her up, and boom! Fever's gone. Not only is it gone, but she begins to wait on them, probably preparing a meal for them with Peter's wife. Like, oh, I'm better. Wow. This miracle was apparently done for the benefit of the four disciples. They were the only ones to see it. And besides, of course, Peter's mother and uh, Peter's wife and and his mother-in-law. And it's probably a story uh, relayed directly to Mark from Peter because it's not located in the other Gospels. And since Peter dictated this gospel to Mark and Mark put the stories together from Peter. It's one that Peter, it really stood out to Peter. Um, And so it was conveyed through Mark. And Peter obviously had a personal interest in the story and what happened. And this brings us to a third point this morning that uh, I think is really important uh, that Mark is emphasizing. So we've seen the authority of Jesus. We've seen the power of Jesus. And now we're seeing the compassion of Jesus. Jesus had compassion on people. Watch the response. That evening, so they had probably gone to the synagogue in, in, in the afternoon, probably about three in the afternoon. They're in Peter's house, probably about uh, anywhere from 4.30 to 6 would be the guesstimates. It says that evening at sundown, So it hadn't even been an hour since the event happened in the synagogue and probably only 15 minutes or a half hour since uh, Jesus healed the fever of his mother-in-law. It says they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. That didn't take long. Word got out fast and people boogied. It says they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now, I don't know how big Nazareth was. There's not really accurate estimates. But even a small village of four to 800 people is about a common size for those towns up there, maybe 1,000, 1,500. But in a half an hour, that whole city gathered at the door of Peter's house. And it says he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So there's an instant lightning reaction to this. It didn't, as I mentioned, didn't take long. Peter's, uh, Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, and Jesus' compassion was displayed by healing all those who had infirmities and freeing those who had demons. Can you imagine the reaction if you were in the crowd? I mean, you've grown up in this town. You know everybody. You know the ones who are a little off, ones who aren't quite right, right? A few fries short of a Happy Meal. And the ones who are hurting, the ones who've crippled, the ones who had unfortunate accidents, you know, that kind of stuff. 
And you're watching them come to the door and you're watching Jesus heal them and you're like, wow, what is that? And one of the things that instantly stands out to you is I don't know who that guy is and I don't know much about him, but if he cares for broken and hurt people like that, he must be a great guy. I've got to find out more about that guy. What, what really moved people wasn't power and authority. It was compassion. And it stands out here. Well, this goes on for the night, and then it's, Mark moves right along, saying, And rising very early the next morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So we've, Mark's introduced us very quickly to the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and now he introduces us to the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus got alone and sought time with his Father. The day had been taxing. You can imagine if you had to run that schedule, you'd have been exhausted. Right? It probably took a lot of effort and a lot of emotional toll. And so he needed to recharge his battery spiritually, and so he started his day early before the others had awakened. It says while it was still dark. So now, depending on the time of year, right? Dark is different times. We don't know exactly when dark would have been, but it means he got up early in the morning. He was rolling out before other people got going. Just a a personal testimony for myself. I find that if I don't get prayer uh, early in the day, the day tends to slip away from me really fast because a whole bunch of things pile in And what happens for me is uh, the desire to pray becomes a good intention. If I don't get it first thing, right away in the morning, get my Bible out, pray, uh, get read, and then pray, uh, it it skips by me, and before I know it, the day is over. I don't know if that's true for you. It's just true for me. Uh, Also, I, I have to get up early enough because as soon as the house begins to wake up and everything starts moving, I get distracted. Noises, doors, things, and I'm suddenly uh, all over the place. Uh, My focus drifts. Uh, While it's quiet, uh, I can read and pray. I have a spot on our couch. It's where the two corners of the couch come together. We have a little lamp behind. I turn that little lamp on in the darkness, and I open my Bible, and I sit there. And that's where I read, and that's where I pray before I get ready for the day. Uh, While it's quiet, I can read and pray. And usually that means it has to be dark. Once the light hits, everything starts moving. It seems to me that this was the same focus for Jesus. Mark goes on. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came. So the disciples didn't really get it. They thought, oh, this is cool. We're at the center of this really exciting thing. People are already showing up. This is going to be great. I thought, wait, where's Jesus? What? Well, do you know where he is? I don't know where he is. I thought you know where he was. Where'd he go? I don't know. Did you hear him? No. So you can imagine the word here that they use uh, when it says search for him is they were hunting for him. Right? They are scattered out looking for him. Like, obviously, we've got a good gig going here, and you're blowing it. You need to get back over here and get this show on the road again. Everyone is looking for you. 
But Jesus knows the human heart. Jesus knows our fickleness. Jesus knows. He says, hey, we're going to have to go to the other towns and uh, I need to preach there as well. And so begins the greatest ministry of the greatest life ever lived on planet Earth. The life of Jesus, the Messiah. The disciples are all caught up in what has happened and what, what they think, they, they think they're helping Jesus. You ever done that? Help the Lord out? You know, Lord, I don't think you quite get it, so let me help fill you in here a little bit, what's really going on so that you know, and uh, I'll be glad to consult for you. You ever been the Lord's consultant? That does usually not go very well. Okay. The tone in these words here is, hey, you better get over here. There's a lot of people looking for you. Come on, chop, chop. Right? Doesn't that just sound like us? And you look and go, so dumb. You know what's amazing? What looks so dumb in others looks kind of good in myself. Right? Mark says this then, and they went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So it didn't just say back to that map of Galilee again. So they start walking through the towns. Now what's fascinating about this, and we go, yeah, well, so what? Okay. This is northern Israel. This has never been the center or the hub. This is the part that fell away the first. The northern tribes are the ones that got wiped out the first. The northern tribes are the ones that went apostate first. These are the tribes that got wiped out by Assyria. Uh, over to the left there of Nazareth and Nain, you've got the whole area um, where um, you know it's become uh, apostate. And so they're, they're just looking and... This isn't, um, it's, it's, it's never played a significant role in Israel's history. It was considered kind of maybe the way you look at it, it's the poor side of town, right? Jerusalem and Judah, and that was the, the in place to be, the up neighborhood to live in. This is kind of the boondocks. Uh, it would be especially seen that way by Jerusalem. But now, this, this byword, uh, this, this way station, this off-the-beaten-tracks place plays one of the most prominent roles in the history of the world. This now suddenly becomes ground zero of something that has never happened before. It was prophesied. Matthew tells us about this uh, in this commentary given uh, in, in chapter 4. He says, Now when uh, he had heard that John had been arrested, we follow the same pattern in Mark, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. I'm in the book of Judges right now reading about Zebulun and Naphtali and that's the story of Gideon and all those stories. That all happens right there. Right? Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. A people dwelling in darkness has seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. God came to a dark place and shed light on it. So, take home this morning. Which one of these encounters do you need today? As you read this story, as I thought this through, is it on the authority issue? 
Are you resisting? Are you doing this? Are you digging your heels in? You know God has asked something of you or you know God has asked you to give something up and you just will not or you won't because you don't want to. Or is it on the power side that you've written Jesus off, that he's powerless, he's ineffective? There's lots of other things that are far more intriguing than Jesus and I'm not really impressed and you have to come back to acknowledging the power of God in your life and in the lives of others. Or maybe it's the compassion side. Lots of needs of compassion in our culture. Let me just give you a really brief story. So uh, I'm the chairman of Leak Retreat Camp and as a result of that, uh, one of my buddies, Rob Newman, he's the director of the camp. We, Rob and I have known each other for over 35 years. Uh, great, great friend. A godly dude. And uh, his daughter, Megan, his youngest daughter, Megan, uh, married a, a Chinese-Australian named Jeremy. Jeremy does not look like you think a Chinese-Australian look. He's 6'5", about 235. And uh, uh, incredible athlete, incredible bicyclist, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, his parents, his dad ran a dentistry practice um, down in Australia. And, and uh, Jeremy has taken over that practice. And um, uh, just great guy. I did their wedding, uh, their pre-marriage counseling by Skype. He was in Australia. She was in Ravensdale. And I was in Mill Creek. And so, for the first time ever, we did pre-marriage counseling by, uh, by Skype or FaceTime, right? Weird, cool, different. Because um, none of us are in the same room, and yet we're talking about the same stuff. It was a fantastic time. We did their wedding on top of Mount Rainier. Uh, it was fantastic. And uh, not on the very top. What's the ski lift there? Um, Crystal Mountain, there you go. Well, you take the thing up and there's that big flat and they did the wedding right there. So you're looking right at Rainier. It was spectacular. They're in need of compassion right now. Jeremy, as I mentioned, is a bicyclist. And this past week, um, his world went upside down. They found him in a ditch. He either had crashed or a car hit him and sent him into the ditch. Uh, He severed his spine. He'll never walk again. He's got massive head trauma. They have all the tubes and pressure things to try and keep him alive right now. Uh, He has uh, other things wrong with him, but those things are kind of minor compared to those kind of things. And so instantly, Megan and Jeremy's world has been rocked. His parents' world has been rocked. Um, His mom and dad are avid, avid believers in Jesus, totally surrendered kingdom people. And... um, they, so Rob and Lynn, his wife, in the midst of the snowstorm this past week, drove to SeaTac to get a plane to Australia so they could be there with their family. In the midst of this, Jeremy's parents found out this week at the same time that their daughter, Tiffany, has stage four breast cancer. At the same moment. Right? How would you react to that? They're stunned. Robin Lynn are stunned. Megan's world is upside down. 
they don't even know how they're going to function. They have a house, a great house. As a matter of fact, they have a mother-in-law apartment off of it, and we've been Pam and I have been invited to go there in the past. Uh, we haven't made it yet, but they realize that their house won't work because it has stairs, and the bathrooms and bedrooms are upstairs, and there's nothing on the main floor. So now they have to find a, uh, an apartment that is handicapped access, and Megan can't even take care of him because he's a big guy, and so they have to get help and... Um, and and so they're they're trying to reorient and dad who's fully retired now has to retake over the practice while he's shuttling he and his wife between ICU with Jeremy and over to the other hospital for their daughter John set this up really well this morning it's not so much that we give thanks when things are good but we give thanks even when things aren't good that's the power. You say, where does the power come from? It comes from a heart of thankfulness. I'd like you to pray for them as a family. They could use our compassion. They could use our support. Jesus has a heart for people who are hurting. That's often when we see it the clearest. Jeremy's not out of the woods. He's made some great improvements. He's actually had a thumbs up sign. But a small infection could take them out just like that. So we're walking that as we do it. Or is it this one? Prayer. You just don't see the sense of it. You just don't, it just doesn't connect. Why pray? I'm just going to go through my life and whatever happens, happens. And I don't really need to lift things up in prayer. Which, which one of these four is your takeaway this Sunday? Which one is the Holy Spirit saying to you, that one? That one right there. I want you and me to focus on that one this week. You have it? All right, then let's pray. Father, this is a sacred trust with you. If you've pointed something out and one sticks out, then, Father, it is uh, important that we hold on to this. My whole prayer this week, Lord, to you is that this just wouldn't be words that we would be caught by the beginning of your ministry. We would be awed. We would be startled like they were when you spoke in that synagogue. That we would reorient hard towards you. That we would listen. That we would keep a posture of surrender. That we would um, stay focused under your authority. Lord, may we have your compassion the way you had compassion. Those people were in desperate straits. When it says the sick and the demon-possessed, Lord, those people were lucky if they lived the next month with what was going on. You you, You desperately wanted to release the captives. Lord, our culture is every bit as sick, every bit as twisted. Lord, we pray for a breakthrough from you that would reveal your authority and power to a cynical and actually wicked culture. Lord, we ask for your favor in that. Again, be kind. Not because you have to, but because it's who you are. We ask for this in your name. Amen.